Okay, so today uh, we're going to talk about centralization, how governments over time have centralized power amongst a larger number of people and over a larger area, and what technologies and innovations they use to do so. At the end, we're going to discuss the postmodern era, put globalism, the WEF, and other international NGOs in this context. Uh, so this is episode 43 of the Illegitimate Scholar podcast, a weekly dissident anthropology podcast that asks social studies questions not permitted in mainstream academia. Here we take we make sense of the senseless perception of the world crafted by modern humanities. Now that's the uh, introduction that you don't like, right? I think that's the second introduction that I wasn't a huge fan you of. You don't like? I, I need to sit down and listen to them both again before I can give you That's that. okay. I had the other one for a while. Um, this is Hagee. You guys probably Man. know Higgy. We're uh, traveling right now. And, you know, this is just a normal episode, but I'm just going to run it off of Higgy. Um, so I said, yeah, we're, you know, we're out here doing this stuff. Illegitimate Scholar Podcast, Dissident Anthropology. Uh, had a lot of success recently. It's been really awesome. Thanks to, you know, a number of people, Alaric, Stone Age Herbalist, I Hypocrite, bunch of great people I've been talking to. Check out the Discord for conversations. All this stuff is also on YouTube, even though this is pretty audio facing. So if you're watching this on YouTube, go ahead and check out the audio, Illegitimate Scholar on all platforms as well. And uh, five till midnight every Monday night uh, with, the, with the boys, Thursday night, 8 p.m. Eastern live. And uh, yeah, we got a lot of stuff going on, making a lot of good content and unedited and extra content, including whatever people really want is up on the Patreon. So please check that out. Just $2 right now. I got a few spots left. Uh, thank you to people who have done it so far. So, okay. We're talking about centralization. So, so that's what we're going to do in this episode. Um, and But first, I'm going to define the actual word centralization. These are two different definitions that are pretty similar. So the action or process of bringing activities together in one place, and we're looking at that from a political and a human culture perspective, um, and the concentration of control of an activity or organization under a single authority. Uh, so today we're going to talk about we're going to talk about absolutism. We're going to talk about the Roman Empire, the Chinese Empire. We're going to talk about the American Empire. Uh, we're going to talk about the Spanish Empire. A few different things. And we're going to talk about a number of different innovations and technologies that resulted in what we have today and where we're going in the future. So I did just do that again. I really just, whatever. Hunter-gatherers, state of nature. State of nature is a concept that comes out of Hobbes. Crap. Hobbes or Locke, one of those guys, enlightenment thinkers. And the state of nature is just like, you know, there's no rules. There's no socially constructed rules. Everything's just nature. So, you know, there's no, the dark sides of this is there's no concept of, you know, violence being against the rules. Violence is just what you're able to do. Uh, there's no concept of consent. There's no human rights. There's none of that. It's a state of nature. It's essentially you know, human beings as animals, because we are animals. I mean, that's the whole point of this, you know, homo sapiens. We are homo sapiens. This is the Illegitimate Scholar podcast. This is anthropology, study of humans. We are animals, and people love to deny that. And the centralization of force higher and higher often has a lot to do with separating us from animals in a lot of ways, oftentimes explicitly, always implicitly. So hunter-gatherers, this is the closest thing we can get to a state of nature. And, and often hunter-gatherers still do have some socially constructed rules. I mean, they, they do because any sort of culture is socially constructed. So, so at the moment that human beings are capable 
of thinking about it, they're going to have some sort of culture, some sort of social institutions. I mean, even some bird species have culture in the sense that birds, it's not innate, it is taught how birds on, you know, different islands in uh, somewhere in like French Polynesia, there are different crows that they realized it wasn't innate. The difference is the, the, the birds on each different island had their own style of making tools, making little tools, and they figured out it wasn't innate. Uh, some bird scientists have done that. Very cool stuff. But human culture. So this, this is the lowest form, hunter-gatherers. And when I say lowest form, I don't mean that, they're, that we are better than them because we have giant skyscrapers and 45% obesity. I mean that like it's the most primitive, and again, most primitive, in the sense that it has the least complexity to it. So hunter-gatherers, generally human beings as animals, we can kind of understand about 150 people. So 150 people is the max that most people can know. And scientists have, or 150 people is the most that people can like reasonably understand this, the social intricacies between them. And I'm sure it's different for different people, but that comes from how humans were organized into bands and tribes for most of human history. Bands being smaller versions, tribes being a collection of bands that are connected generally through kinship groups. So 150 people, any higher centralization requires some level of political organization. So it's very simple at this stage. The idea that all relationships are predicated on power, right, I think is what some of this research probably comes out of. Right. But it seems like it seems like that's not the best way. Right. I, I think most people would agree with that. And for, I'm going to take these birds, for example. Right. No longer were they just living together in relationships defined by defined by power. Right. They, they find better ways than that to do things. Right. And that's kind of what humans have done. Right. Like that's what culture is. It, it, it it's a layer on, on top of whatever. Uh, whatever the animal instinct, the, the relationship based on power, right? Like I can do this because I'm doing this because I can, there is no right. There is no wrong, right? Yeah. There, there is no consent, but then we discover better ways to do that. So, so yeah, yes. So in a state of nature, it's very raw power, right? So it's just like physical power mm -hmm. and it, it doesn't have to be just physical power. It could be like you know, if you can get, if you can convince five dudes, and this is a lot of what it is, you know, we've talked about big men on this podcast before and a number of other places. Like if you can convince people to follow you, uh, rather than them being in some sort of political or social institution, then they're going to follow you. And, and that's still in a state of nature, essentially. Um, but what I, I like what you said about, about the power, it's like, they're still based on power, but it's just institutionalized power. Mm -hmm. that, that's essentially what it comes down to. It's like after the state of nature, once you have political organization, those political and social organizations, that's just how power is organized. And the like those are created from whoever took power in a state of nature and then expanded on it from there. And then whoever takes it over from there, different dynasties, things like that. But yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, but it's not just predicated on power. It, did I, did I, respond in the way like did you get what i said yeah no i absolutely oh, okay, understand cool. what you're saying yeah no for cool. sure uh can i say one more thing about yeah, it yeah 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 go ahead there's a limit to how much take myself for example or i'm not a super big guy there's a limit on how much power that i can have 
in the raw sense, right? Physically, that there's a limit on what I can use brute force to achieve, right? But once I start involving politics in that, right? Or, or once I start involving um, social norms that I'm creating or abiding by, then the limit of my power increases substantially. So to your point of centralization, it's just a centralization of power in some, in some sense. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, the, the thing with that is that the, uh, number one, in these hunter-gatherer societies, what is actual power, you know, can change over time. So even, I mean, even in modern era and, and throughout history, uh, while this is, this is often like, a, you know, a woke history idea, the idea that women did have significant authority in the past and today based on their own standards, it's not usually based on physical strength because like with bell curves, women in general are less physically strong than men, but they're, they're strong in other ways. And, and many early societies were matriarchal in certain senses, but there is something I talk about a lot here. So if you, if you're a listener, you know, this is that there, uh, today there seems to be a concentration on one path towards success, which only applies to a very small number of people. Uh, traditionally that would be white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, the wasps, uh, male, upper middle class, that type of thing. Today, it's it's a little bit changed, I think. And I would argue that today it it really has more to do with a multicultural international elite and their standards as globalism happens. But we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. Um, so in a lot of these earlier societies, and I'm talking from my experience, specifically, I'm talking about Eastern Algonquin Native Americans and uh, the Haudenosaunee. And the Haudenosaunee were and are, they are, they, they still live in the Great Lakes region in the U.S. and Canada, First Nations. And the Haudenosaunee had this, this uh, structure and have, in a certain way, called the Great Law of Peace. And it, it, it guided these five, they called them the five civilized tribes. And these tribes were, they had the most complex uh, political organization in the area. There was also the Huron and the Abenaki Confederacy at, at different times. Huron being contemporary. But then the Eastern Algonquin Native Americans were mostly hunter-gatherers. They did have more organization in the sense of they had tributary systems, but the leaders of these people, not the great law of peace, we'll come back to that in a second, because that is an actual institutionalized political organization. But with the Eastern Algonquin, they had sachems and squaws. And these are very similar to big men. And it these are people who would have people follow them just based on the fact that people wanted to follow them. So you would have somebody who was a good talker. They made good choices. They acted well. People knew them because this is in a small society where it's based on reputation. That's, I mean, that's really what centralization comes down to in the future is that political organizations, they allow for a centralization of more people. So when you have a smaller number of people, um, you can you can base it just based on how people feel. So based on who wants to follow someone else. So lesser big men, maybe they lead a few families. They would join a greater big man, a big man in a situation that called for it under different standards. Did that make sense? I don't yes. Think it did. No, did it, it? Did yes. Okay, fantastic. Um, okay, so in the Eastern Algonquin tradition, the the Sachems would be chosen to lead 
and then they would just they they would lead. And if the sachem no longer was capable of leading, you would know because people would stop following them, as in they would physically leave the location. Like they don't, or they don't have to leave. Someone else can just take control. It might come to violence. It might not. It often did not. I don't think most of the time it did because everybody knew that people followed who they wanted to. And if somebody wasn't doing it anymore, then they wouldn't follow them. And this also means that maybe somebody was better as a leader for a certain situation, but then the situation changes and you got to follow someone else. And a specific example of that would be King Philip Metacome. He was a pretty... He was a, a pretty violent guy. He was uh, he was a Eastern Algonquin who who was pretty warlike, both with his neighbors and at certain points with the Europeans. And he was eventually chosen. He was rejected at, at certain times by people and had some ritual humiliation at certain points. But eventually, when the context called for it, he he became the leader of a much larger confederacy. But that's a conversation for another day. So the the great law of peace of the Haudenosaunee, they have specific leaders, um, and these were compartmentalized into tribal mothers as well as clan leaders that were male, tribal mothers, of course, being female. I can't get into the specifics. It's its own episode in itself, so we won't do it. But that's what we're talking about. I, I, I The reason I brought up these is because I want to talk about, uh, before I jump, because I'm about to make a big jump, but... I wanted to talk about both how hunter-gatherers and lower forms of centralization worked. I wanted to talk about how hunter-gatherers and how humans in a state of nature, you know, experience authority to compare it to what we're going to talk about for the rest, which is social institutions and what we talk about most of the time on this show. So we're going from the early social institutions, like some of the first social institutions that we really see developing in culture to the social institutions that we're familiar with today. Yes, that's what we're doing. So, so the reason for this is because, so you'll notice that I was using Native Americans as an example, and that's because those Native Americans were in a lower, well, these Native Americans, there were other Native Americans who were much more developed, but Eastern Algonquin, um, those Native Americans largely pastoralists and hunter-gatherers, whereas the Haudenosaunee were very early on in their political organization that they had created. Both of them were in this state prior to uh, Columbus arriving on the shores. In the case of New England, there were some Europeans in the 1500s, no settlements until about the 1620s and 30s. So the reason I bring those up is because they're kind of a stand-in for earlier human societies that we don't know as much about. So things, and we, we see hunter-gatherers in other parts of the world, in pastoralists, Papua New Guinea, uh, the Haida in the Northwest, the, the Khoisan in uh, Southern Africa, these people have similar ways of living. So, you know, it's not exact, but that's kind of the style. It's, it's kind of the style of how the first iterations would be. But what I can't do is draw a pattern from pre-Latin people in a very, like, accurate way to then land in the Roman Empire. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to use China as an example of a, a empire. And everyone knows about Rome. So, well, sorry, if you don't know about Rome, you're going to learn a little bit about Rome. But uh, the Roman Empire and the Chinese Empire in its modern state under Qing Shi Huangdi, they're very similar in a lot of ways. So the stuff that I'm going to say that the Chinese did here, this is the example I'm going to use, those consider it very similar with the Romans. Um, 
And I wanted to bring this up because, you know, I love talking about China. You guys know that. So early empire, we're going to talk about China now. So this is the earliest one we're going to talk about. And then we're going to talk about a few other centralizations now. After that, I, I told you at the beginning. So in China, under Qing Shi Huangdi, who was the founder of the Han Dynasty, he made the Terracotta Army. He made the Great Wall. We're going to go back to the Great Wall. He's basically the George Washington of China. And the fact that he lived in like 220 BC, BC, um, is crazy compared to, to ours. Although, you know, different figures, obviously. Excuse me. So standardized writing system. This is a technology. It, you know, it might not be super intuitive, but Qing Shi Huangdi unified the Chinese writing system. And what this, what this meant is that with writing, you can extend farther because you don't have to be speaking. You don't have to say something to an official and then have that official go out and trust that that official is doing what you want him to do. I say him because this was a Confucian society run by men. This was in the most literal sense, unlike today, this was a patriarchal society. And Qing Shi Huangdi, he standardized this writing system because he understood that having this writing system would allow him to spread out further. And then, you know, they would have this imperial seal that you would put it on, that they would know that it was, uh, that, that it was real. And I assume during Qing Shi Huangdi's time, this was, this was true. But at other points in Chinese history, I know for a fact that... Uh, that making a fake seal would be punishable by death. It would be. And, and the reason for that is because it's very serious to pretend that you're giving the word of the emperor. You're pretending to be the emperor. It's, it's sacrilege in a place where the emperor uh, is considered divine. And that's true of not only China, but many other places as well. And you would find the same uh, plagiarism of the emperor or the queen or king's rules as being punishable by death, even in Europe, into the early modern era. So there's also standardized systems of weights and measurements. And this made trade and commerce more efficient and helped to create a more unified economy. And, you know, this writing system and these weights and measurements where the trade is happening accurately between different places, everybody is operating in a similar way. So all of these different things that we're talking about, they add up to a shared culture where people are doing similar things. So they think about the world in a similar way. They're talking in the similar language or the same language, and it really unites people. And when, when people consider themselves of the same people, ruling over them or being the government that, that or being in a better way of putting it, being the leader of those people, is much easier. You can't, it's much harder to rule over a decentralized group of people that are not the same than it is to rule over a group of people that are unified. He also created a network of roads and canals. So it made it easier to transport goods and troops. You'll find the Romans did this as well, just like they did a standardized writing system, standardized language, and standardized weights and measurements because they're allowing trade. It's, it's standardized. Trade happens throughout the empire in one way. Everybody's doing the same thing. The customs are similar. There's, of course, localism. But these, these certain very important things, over time, people begin to feel camaraderie with each other. And that's why the Han Chinese ethnic group, while there is arguments about it being a real ethnic group, it is the largest ethnic group in the world today. Um, so this, this was back in, the, back in BC. They're making these massive network of roads and canals to do this. 
And the other thing is the Great Wall of China. Now, the Great Wall of China would, of course, protect the barbarians, but it would also have this effect of the outsider. So oftentimes in history, people define themselves not, people define themselves culturally not based on who they are, but who they are not. So people will define themselves based on who they are, but there is an element, and sometimes it becomes more important of saying, look at them, we are not them. And they would be barbarians. And this is the translation. It was used in a very similar way to the Romans, is that the barbarians were the ones far away. And China, the Middle Kingdom, they are not barbarians. They are the civilized people. So they know that beyond that wall, that's where the barbarians are. That's the enemy. We're in here. We're civilization. The wall keeps us safe. It keeps them out and it keeps our people in. Although, you know, I don't know what the freedom of movement was like back then in different places, but it does keep them out. So how do you feel? You got anything on this? <laughs> on China? What do you got to say I mean, about the, China? I mean, there's so... China. China. There's so many parallels you can draw there where you're talking about people identifying themselves by what they are not. There's so many parallels that you can draw to today just from that um, example. But yeah, that's not what we're talking about. You got about. one? You can draw one. Draw one. We'll Cleveland it. Okay. Cleveland that. We had a little tangent on uh, trans issues and racism and defining yourself. And that's just going to be on the Patreon. So we're going to go back in. We just talked about China. So after the Roman Empire collapses, the next thing I want to concentrate on is the modern era, beginning with the era of absolutism. And when I say the modern era, I'm talking basically around 1500. A little bit earlier, a little bit later, whatever. But that's around when it starts, is around 1500. Early modern era is what we're going to start with. So feudalism in Europe, this is a decentralized system. It's a lot of patronage networks. Hashtag patronage, Bog Beef, Marbleck, Good Old Boys Podcast, shout them out, you know. So feudalism in Europe is decentralized. It's a decentralized system that's based on tradition. So it's not decentralized in the sense that it's like big men. It's decentralized, but there are customs that govern a wide, wide area. But it doesn't have a centralized bureaucracy to the level of the Roman Empire or of the uh, Chinese Empire. It doesn't have that. But it does have a system that makes people pretty successful in, in you know, relatively. There's a lot of things, you know, in the past, the Dark Ages, they were called the Dark Ages. Modern historians, both uh, both dissident historians and social scientists, social anthropologists would call it a misnomer, the Dark Ages. Dissident and mainstream people are going to call this a misnomer. The Dark Ages is, is not the Dark Ages. It was different. It just had a different system. It just didn't have a large centralization. And what we don't want to do, especially as, you know, libertarian-leaning individuals, at least in my case, is to call a situation where there is a single centralized authority as the pinnacle of civilization, because that's scary to me. I would rather have a more decentralized system, something akin to federalism, which is what we're supposed to have in the United States, but it's kind of dead. However, I digress. So feudalism, it's being abolished in Europe throughout this area, and this is for a number of reasons we're going to get into through one specific example. But two things I'm going to mention first is that this is the era of absolutism, centralization of bureaucracies within these monarchs. That doesn't mean that it's one single person. It doesn't mean that there's one person at the top who's making every single decision. It means that there is one person who does have a larger percentage of influence. But at the same time, these people always, always, always had a system of advisors 
They use their family kin networks. They use all these different things. Like Elizabeth had a bunch of advisors. She has a court. Uh, we're going to talk about Philip II in a, sec- in a, in a second. But e- even in feudalism, you know, it's the kings didn't have as much power. The kings and the queens and different monarchs did not have as much power as they had during the absolutist era. But they, it, patronage is still used. And it's still used into this absolutist era. It's just that in the absolutist era, these monarchs will select people for positions officially rather than it being more of a often mostly hereditary situation with, with feudalism and you kind of get what you get. With the, with the Roman Empire, the Chinese Empire, as well as with these later absolutist rulers, they're going to fill these social institutions with their patrons. The, the, in the absolutist era, these things start to become centralized again, more akin to the span more akin to the Roman Empire and the Chinese Empire, less decentralized, but they're still using patronage networks to put people loyal to them. And in England, this often meant switching between Protestant and Catholic monarchs meant throwing Catholics into positions or throwing mo- or throwing Protestants into positions. You know, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, the Protestants won out in most situations in that area. Protestant. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not even a practicing Catholic. I should be. Okay, so the other thing I want to talk about is Gutenberg's printing press. You know, I'm sure if you went to school in North America, as most of my listeners do, um, or we've had a lot of people from the UK recently from Stone Age Herbalist coming on. So thank you for that. But if you're if you're from uh, the Anglosphere, if you're from North America specifically, you know about Gutenberg. I'm sure they're teaching about it in Europe and Australia as well. So. Gutenberg's printing press is very, very important. And it's important for all the reasons you've been told already. We'll go over that quick. It allowed information to spread further. Mass production of the same information, heavily controlled by specific people at this point, because, you know, it's not like you get a printer from Amazon and you can just hook it up to your cheap personal computer. These are big machines and they're easily controlled in the case where there's not very many of them. And there's a lot of into people's lives. You know, people are, the government, Big Brother's watching you at this time and people are watching each other. So this is assisted by the bureaucracy. So we're going to go into specific examples. The specific example I'm going to use today is uh, Philip II of Spain, who is, I think, my favorite monarch of the absolutist era. It's between Philip II and Elizabeth I of England. Uh, Yeah, do you know anything about Philip II? I don't know anything about Philip II. So Philip II, this is the mid-1500s. I don't think he gets the credit he deserves uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, the 1500s and 1600s, the early modern era, is very much, it's neglected, I think, in a lot of ways. And it's very important because this is the root of our modern time. So I love talking about the 1500s and 1600s. And then the late, the high and late Middle Ages that came right before it. So Philip II, you might have learned about him in school in North America. Uh, you probably did in the UK. I don't know. Let me know, British listeners, if you have, British and Irish listeners, if you have. Um, not that Irish is in the UK. Sorry, that's not what I meant to say. Syntaxly, maybe that's how that came across. So there's a bias against Spanish speakers. And when I say there's a bias against Spanish speakers, I'm talking about this from an academic perspective. I'm not saying that people are racist against Spanish speakers. They might be. But what I'm saying is that the information that we have is in English mostly because most of our academic work is in English. And most of what we know about this era is in English. So there's less written in Spanish. 
is, is the point. And scholars in England, the United States, Canada, Australia, we all use English sources mostly. And those Spanish sources just don't get prominence, even though there are many, many good sources in Spanish. This is common in any language. Um, hopefully, we'll have a lot of these old sources translated, maybe with AI. We'll see. Good uses of AI, some good uses of AI, many bad uses, many such cases. There's also a bias against Spain itself. So Spain and the Spanish Empire was for a very long time the main enemy of England, the British, uh, England first, uh, England and Wales first, and then finally the British once they become a, a an entity. They don't really, uh, there's different times when this changes, but that bias against Spain is something that was inherited by the United States, even though the Spanish, like the French, did help us in our revolution. So there is a bias against Spain and English people, English speakers and English nationally people are going to be supported more and they're going to be talked about more. No country gets covered more than England when you're in when you're learning European history in the United States. And frankly, what I didn't learn until I was an adult is that, honestly, England for most of the Middle Ages was essentially a backwater. And really, this stuff was more coming out of France and Spain, the Netherlands, lots of stuff in the HRE, but mainly France. I mean, France is really it. But I, you know, as a kid, you grow up learning in American schools and they teach you more stuff about England. And that's like, that's because of our bias as we're an English diaspora country. So there's also a bias against Catholics. Talked about this a little bit. England has a bias against Catholics. England was a Protestant country largely at this time and a little bit later, the United States starts as a Protestant country. So there is a bias against Catholicism built into it. And you can still see evidence of that today uh, even in Canada, they just had the this whole hoax where it wasn't like it was like bad LIDAR data. It was never confirmed. They said there was mass graves. Justin Trudeau. You know, I digress. Am I, am I going the first too off one. topic? Oh, am I going too off? Topic? No, I don't I'm think you're going too off, far off okay. topic at all. I, I was actually cool. I was into the story. I'd like yeah. To finish it. Yeah. No, there's bias against Catholics. There is. It's uh, in, in the U.S. and Canada. Um, but and what it, was the story with Justin Trudeau? I would like to hear that. Oh, yeah. Justin Trudeau, you know, he, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he did support this idea that there had been a genocide where they had, there were mass graves found of Native American children. You guys know that's something I really care about. This particular case wasn't real. And unfortunately, it resulted in burnings of churches and a lot of anti-Catholic and anti-Christian uh, broadly sentiment. And there hasn't really been an apology or a retraction of that, even though certain people were canceled, canceled for, uh, for calling out the hoax. And, you know, that's one of the dangers of this. So Philip II of Spain did a number of things, and this is in the mid 1500s. Ferdinand and Isabella, uh, they were in, Ferdinand and Isabella were from the kingdoms of Castile and Aragon. There were many more kingdoms before that, Leon, Navarre, but Isabella and Ferdinand, they unite. Finally, it's under a personal union at first. They don't become one country. In the 1400s, they get married in 1467, but their children eventually do officially unite Spain into one entity. After the Reconquista happens, they kick out the Muslims. 
they uh, they kick out and they kick out the Muslim kingdoms and then they kick out the Muslims and the Jews in the Inquisition. And I, I think Protestants as well. So once Protestants existed, because in when it started, they didn't exist in the there. There weren't very many of them. So Philip II, he established the Royal Printing Office in Madrid in 1566. So the Royal Printing Office. And this is something that he used to control the flow of information. When you have the Printing Office, which controls what is printed, then you can control what information is being said. You can control what's politically correct. And you can, you know, I mean, you can print lies. Maybe you don't. Maybe you leave certain things out. But you can if you control it, especially if you're an absolutist ruler. So it allows you to control information officially, and it standardizes the information sent throughout the nation. So this is another thing that just helps the culture to unify. He established the Tercios. The Tercios were a professional army under Spain specifically. So this happens once Castile and Aragon and Navarre and Leon, these kingdoms, they, they eventually all unite under the Spanish banner. And under the Spanish banner, in this era of absolutism, they start centralizing the power within that central Spanish bureaucracy. And when you're centralized in the Spanish bureaucracy, rather than being a king or a queen that is leading a people and has a court that is, it's a different political organization, they now had what was becoming, what, what would be the, the roots of the, the modern nation state. And in that, they created the Tercios. It's a professional army rather than the levies that would come out of a decentralized feudal kingdom. And in a decentralized feudal kingdom, you would have layers and layers down of patronage networks where, you know, at the bottom, there's a knight that might come by himself with one page. There might be a knight that has a few guys with him. And up above that, you have barons, dukes, whatever. I don't know what they call them in, in Spain, but they're levies. You don't really know what you're going to get. They belong more to the individual leaders that are in these patronage networks so they can leave. Whereas the Tercios, they belong to Spain and they are standardized and they're created uh, specifically for a purpose. They're standing army. These are professional soldiers that do this all the time, which in the feudal times, most of them wouldn't. And they were all controlled by the monarch and controlled by the central bureaucracy of the new country. So they were very effective and they were used throughout Europe, especially at the time where you have this weird era where these modern states start to come about, but they still have feudal systems of government. So in like you, you have the Habsburg monarchy where one guy controls Spain, Portugal, the low countries, the Netherlands, and then some like Burgundy, which doesn't exist anymore. Austria, like it's crazy how much land they own. But Spain itself. Philip II also built new roads connected Madrid, the capital, to all these different cities in Spain. So the information and the troops can easily travel to those places. So the standardized information, the standardized troops, the standardized roads that go everywhere, the, uh, they could all go there. And this is very important in Spain. Spain, if you look at it on a topographical map, it is all mountains. It's just a mess. It's an absolute mess. Not all mountains, but mostly mountains. So along with all this, Spanish bureaucracy. They create a new bureaucracy, new roads, new armies, royal printing office. All of these things feed into each other. All of them help each other. All of them centralized into the absolutist ruler, who again is not making decisions on his own. He has a patronage network. He does have limitations. But 
it's all within one entity, whereas feudalism is much more decentralized. He established a postal service that linked Madrid to all major Spanish cities. Similar thing. You control the post. You control the post. You control the printing press. You control the army. You control the trade. You control everything. You control everything. That's what it is. And by you control everything, again, the entity. So all of these different things that Philip II of Spain did, they all allowed for faster movement, more standardized movement. They allowed for a higher level of perception of people living in this place as being part of one unified entity as it was more of a daily part of their lives. And there are other limitations. You know, they didn't have the internet. They didn't even have telegraphs or trains. There's limitations, but they did the best they could at the time. And then there's going to be more centralization into the future, right? So this is all possible because, okay, so the cannons, cannons are everything. Cannons are expensive. Only the most wealthy could afford them. They destroyed fortifications easily, so they destroyed the viability and defense of small forts and castles. So you have the HRE where, like, the HRE is this decentralized place where all these different people, um, all these different people, Switzerland, Saxony, Brandenburg, those are the major ones. There's, like, Florence. Maybe Florence wasn't a part of it. But regardless, there's a bunch of tiny ones, a bunch of free cities. And there's a couple remnants of this still. I I don't know, Liechtenstein. um, Switzerland, obviously, is still independent. But the cannons, which only the rich could afford, they have these new standing armies, the the richest people leading the the biggest places. You have unification. Cannons are used in unification everywhere. They're used in the unification of France, which is not talked about as much because France was already more centralized. But it was used in the centralization of France, of Spain, of Germany, all of like especially Germany and the HRE. The HRE is just a mess. And then... It just gets more unified. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Cannons. They have these fortifications. Fortifications don't mean anything anymore. Some rich dude comes in with a cannon, blows your crap out. He doesn't need you anymore. He doesn't need you at all. So replaces the old feudal nobles, puts in his own advisors. Maybe the feudal noble plays good. He gets a piece in the new administration. If he doesn't, probably not. Probably not getting shit. Probably going to die. Probably going to die. Probably going to die. Modern era. All the centralization in the modern era Modern error. Yeah, and that's actually true. Modern error. We're in a modern era right now. All of the centralization in the modern era mirrors the past. Railroads allowed for even faster transportation. We're talking about railroad ne- networks in the 1800s. The telegraph came out. Information is pushed out faster. Um, and, you know, I've talked about this before, is that, like, the 19th century, even though you had the absolutist era in the 1500s, 1600s, you have you have the them circumnavigating the globe in the 1500s. You have this, the, the British Empire in the 1700s ruling all these different places. But even still, if you went to Ireland in the 1800s, people are still speaking Irish. Scotland in the Highlands, they're speaking Gaelic. They're, they're speaking uh, Scottish Gaelic. You go to Brittany in France, they're still speaking a, a, uh, they're still speaking a Gaelic, or I, I don't know what theirs is called, but Brittany is a Celtic place. They were still speaking a Celtic language. They were speaking a different language in Savoy. Throughout France, they're speaking different dialects. Throughout Italy, they're speaking different dialects. Throughout Spain, they're speaking different dialects. So it's not until the 19th century that a lot of this localism goes away. And it goes away in the face of these other new technologies in this second wave. When you have the railroad, the telegraph, it allows and it promotes, it incentivizes all of these things to go 
I can you shut uh, Galicia and Spain, another Celtic area gets, you know, it's it's gone. Well, it's still there. It still has local culture, but the language is gone. And the language, like I've said before, need to do a series on language. It's the most important thing. You lose your language, you lose your culture. That's how it works. It just does. And it, it, part of it happens through for, forced, forced assimilation. You saw this in the U.S. and Canada and Australia with Native American boarding schools. You saw this in the colonization of Ireland by the British, is that it's, you know, you're not allowed to speak your language. You have to speak our language. That's because that this was an attempt at cultural genocide, um, which is, you know, almost successfully. In America around this time, French goes out of style. So you have Quebec, and today people know Quebec is speaking French, but that's a modern reinvention. They, they, uh, French had gone way down in popularity in France into the mid to late 20th century, and it was revived. And it was revived because it was important to their culture, and that's created a lot of problems in Canada. It's not a value judgment. I'm just saying that, that Canada essentially is at the mercy of Quebec. In Quebec... Because if Quebec wants to leave, they will. And if they leave, they'll take Alberta, Manitoba, and um, the other one with them. And because they're not going to stick there. Because Alberta and Manitoba and uh, Saskatchewan are not going to stay in Canada if the French leave because they're just going to be dominated by Ontario. But that's a unnecessary tangent. If you're Canadian and I'm saying this wrong, please let me know. But that, that is my perception of it. But immigrants to the U.S., they stop speaking their language after a few generations. You move to the United States, maybe you speak German. Um, you know, I'm talking about the 1800s. You speak German or French. A few generations, you speak English. It's just, it's decentralized because it's just actively the language that people speak. People have a prejudice against people speaking other language, especially in the 1800s and early 1900s. And you're economically better off to join the society if you speak English. And then your kids especially in the 1900s, are going to go to public schools where they're going to be taught the English language. These public schools in, in the Prussian model, which comes out of the late 1700s, early 1800s, which we've talked about before, they're going to be taught uh, specifically in the nationalist tradition. That didn't change until like the 90s, and it hasn't really changed until today. I'm not going to go into the specifics of like educational curriculum and, and multi-languages and everything, but it's, it's definitely not like that today. They are allowing people to, to you know, continue to speak their language, which I have mixed feelings about. Some things are good, some things are bad, but essentially everybody was learning English at this time. Uh, did I go too off topic? No, I don't think so. Okay, you never said that I have, but I feel like I did. But anyway, you know, it, at this time in the 1800s, to, to recap that, French drops out of favor, in, in Canada, all these other minority languages in the United States, they're lost. Indian boarding schools in the U.S., Canada, and Australia deny Native people from speaking their own languages. These were all done very intentionally because they understood that speaking the other language and these other cultural practices were a threat to the power of the centralized state. And that's why it's still done today with any sort of cultural factor. The state naturally, the, the state and the people in it naturally want to control. It's, that's what they do. And they can control easier if you're literally speaking the same language. It's not a metaphor when I'm saying it. It's real. And it, it's speaking the same language is a metaphor because of how serious it is. Okay. So postmodern and the future. So today, it's going to briefly go over what's going on today. Uh, the Internet's an insane force. Languages are dying again. 
they're they're dying again. There was somewhat there's been somewhat of fighting against the dying of these languages, but if people are learning them just for the sake of learning them rather than them having some sort of utility based on the values of the society, then you know, it's just not going to work in most cases. It's like you ever stood on the beach and tried to build a sandcastle when the freaking tide is coming in? It's kind of like that. You just, what are you going to do? Some of these languages are going to survive. The Wampanoag language has been revived. Uh, Eastern Algonquin, the Haudenosaunee language, I think never really went away, but is is being preserved. Languages of indigenous people across South, South America and, and Papua New Guinea, some of them are being preserved, but a majority of them are just going to go away. And that's I hope I'm wrong, but but that is what I see happening. You know, uh, uh, people living in squalor, in like really, really bad conditions in much of the third world, in Indonesia, in China, um, not China anymore, but like places like Indonesia, Africa, they still have access to smartphones. And if you have access to smartphones, you have access to like see all the rich people in like the Middle East, in Europe, North America, um, Australia, you see how people live. And not just like normal people in North America. You can see like people in LA with glitz and glamour putting out this, this image of how cool their life is, even though they're addicted to drugs, you know? <laughs> but, um, you know, and it's in English. It's in English. You go to Scandinavia, talk to a person from Scandinavia. They speak English in an American accent. It's crazy. I would like if these people, a lot of the people I met in Scandinavia, they speak English perfectly, number one, better than a lot of Americans. And then in an American accent, if they were here, I think they were American. So when that's the situation that's happening and it's happening because of the movies and TV shows that are just thrown across the globe in English and then in a few other dominant languages like French and Hindi, they're going to dominate, excuse me, they're going to dominate the, the less popular languages around them because people are naturally incentivized to learn those things to be a part of these larger networks. And unfortunately, what, I, what I'm getting at here is that uh, with all these international organizations, international NGOs, speed of high-speed internet being pervasive across the country, not across the country, across the world, uh, you know, the, the quickness of shipping the globalized world in so many ways, it's just, it naturally tends towards centralization at the international level. That's what organizations like the UN and the EU are. They are regional or global organizations that are centralizing the force higher and higher and higher. And eventually that leads to a one world government, um, just naturally. And that's globalism and the, the new world order. 